I was just profoundly moved, bowled over by what I read, by the sheer force of Allah's uncageable mind, by his prescience, by his political commitments, by the endlessly original ways that he finds to express disdain for tyrants, liars, and cowards. But most of all, I was struck by what Allah has to tell us about revolutions. Why most fail, what it feels like when they do, and perhaps how they might still succeed. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, my name is Sharif Abdul-Quddus. Uh, I'm a journalist at Mada Masr, uh, leading independent media outlet in Egypt, and I'm moderating today's event. Um, before we begin, I just want to let everyone know that we will leave time at the end for questions from the audience. Uh, so if you have a question, you can write it in the chat. I can't promise we'll get to all of them, but uh, but we'll try. And so I'm very honored to host today's event that's being sponsored by three great publishing houses, Haymarket Books, Seven Stories Press, and Verso Books. And we're here today to celebrate the book launch of a writer who can't be with us. Um, at this very moment, Ali Abdul Fattah sits in a dark cell in a maximum security prison in Cairo. For nearly uh, three years now, Ali has been denied sunlight. He's been denied fresh air or time outside of his cell. He's been denied any kind of reading material or radio. Uh, and he's been, he's been denied a pen and paper. And today, he's currently on the 31st day of an open-ended hunger strike. Ale has been um, prosecuted or imprisoned by every Egyptian regime to rule in his lifetime. And he's been held behind bars for all but a few months since 2013. And so we're not just here to celebrate Ale's words, the power of his ideas, and his ability to find meaning in difficult times. Uh, we're also here to call for his freedom. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Ale, uh, he's a writer, a technologist, and political activist. And he emerged in the early 2000s as a computer programmer and blogger. He worked on technology localization, on the Arabization of terminology and translating user interfaces into Arabic. And him and his wife, Manel, ran one of the first Arabic blog aggregators. Uh, creating a platform that was a nexus for early online activism in Egypt. Uh, Ale's first arrest and imprisonment came in 2006 under the Mubarak regime, as he joined protests calling for the independence of the judici uh, judiciary. When the revolution erupted in January 2011, Ale moved back to Egypt from South Africa, where he was living, to take part in the uprising. He, was, he emerged as a, an effective and incredibly engaged 
uh, political activist, and he was among the most eloquent of our revolutionaries and political thinkers, always looking to the margins and to the marginalized for inspiration. And for this, Ala has paid a very heavy price. Um, he spent eight of the last nine years behind bars, and he's become arguably Egypt's most prominent political prisoner. In December, he was handed a new five-year prison sentence on false news charges, a sentence that cannot be appealed. And there was also another recent development. Ala recently gained British citizenship through his mother, who was born in London. So we're at a moment of both um, acute crisis and possibility right now. So You Have Not Been Defeated is a selection of Ala's essays, letters, interviews, speeches, social media posts over the past 10 years. And, and much of what is in the book was written from inside prison. So to talk about Ala and his writing, incarceration, revolutionary movements, and much more, um, we're joined by three incredible and inspiring activists. Um, first is Sanat Saif. Uh, Sanat is uh, Ala's sister. She's a filmmaker, producer, and political activist. Uh, at just 28 years old, she's already been in prison three times under the CC regime, spending a total of three years and three months behind bars. The latest was an 18-month sentence she served from the summer of 2020 until she was released uh, this past December. And she's currently in the United States to promote her brother's book and to call for its release. We're also joined by award-winning journalist and columnist Naomi Klein. She's the author of eight books, including No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, This Changes Everything, No Is Not Enough, and On Fire. Uh, Naomi's senior correspondent for The Intercept and uh, is a fellow at the Social Justice Initiative Portal Project at the University of Chicago. And Naomi wrote the foreword uh, to Ala's book, You Have Not Been Defeated. You Have Not Yet Been Defeated. And finally, we're also very fortunate to be joined by Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences and Director of the Center for Place, Culture and Politics at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Uh, Ruthie is co-founder of many grassroots organizations, including the California Prison Moratorium Project, Critical Resistance, and the Central California Environmental Justice Network. She's the author of Golden Gulag, as well as the forthcoming Change Everything and Abolition Geography. So thank you all for uh, being here today. Uh, Sanet, let's start with you. Uh, Ale is on day 31 of an open-ended hunger strike. Your sister Mona was able to visit him in prison a couple of days ago. Uh, what is his condition and what did he say in that visit? Um, uh, physically, he's, uh, he's keeping himself together. Um, he's lost weight uh, and he's... He seems weaker, but uh, but but he's he still haven't entered like the very dangerous phase. But he's he feels like that he's entering that phase. Uh, morally, he's uh, he's he's good. He's I think the fact that he started the strike and that he chose to be resilient makes him feel better. Uh, and so he is resilient, and uh, he, and that's inspiring. Um, <clears throat> the visit was a little dramatic, but without like he wasn't he was emotional a little bit, but without being over dramatic, he was. Uh, you see, uh, we only are allowed uh, one visit a month, uh, and it's for only one one family member. It's uh, twenty minutes, so that was my sister's turn. The next would be my mother's, and so you won't see my sister for a long time, and and for that reason, he kind of 
he 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 said some stuff in case that was farewell. And he just, uh, he told her, I'm okay, I don't want you to worry, but I just want you to know and to remember that uh, I'm content with our, with us, I'm content with what we, with our family, I'm proud of our family, uh, uh, I'm content that we, we, were, we were resilient and that we fought back and that we tried to do something, we tried to, to grasp to doing something meaningful uh, in a very hard time. Um, and, and so it it was uh, it was an emotional visit, uh, but he is like he, he is strong and he's trying to take care of himself as much as possible in in a strike in a in a in the context that he's in. I talked a little bit about Alat's prison conditions, but c- can you explain further what they are and how it's affected him? Um, so Alat for the past around three years hasn't been allowed anything like he's not allowed uh, books or reading materials uh, he doesn't see like he's not he doesn't see sunlight he, he doesn't get out of his cell it's, he only gets out for visitation and court um, and he's not allowed a clock he's um, like he, he's not allowed to be aware of time like the time of the day um, and, and and the thing that that's that, the hardest one for Ali is is uh, the deprivation from uh, from reading materials, because he's not getting any input from the outside other than twenty minutes uh, a month in the visit, uh, and and so in the past uh, last October Ali was was in a very bad state psychologically. He was um, he he expressed suicidal thoughts and part of what uh, and that that's that's something like it, it, it's very unlike him. Um, he's been through a lot, and he's not, he, we have never reached that point. But uh, what he said back then is that I feel like my brain is stopping. Uh, a brain needs input, and I feel like it's stopping. And so that was really getting to him. His his conditions haven't changed in the slightest, but because he chose to, I think because he chose to be resilient and he started the strike and and with also the book. Uh, all of that kind of helped, and so now he's in a diff- in a in a different uh, uh, mode. You've spent a total of three years and three months in prison, over three different imprisonments. The last one a year and a half, um, and you were released in December. And you were arrested after trying to receive a letter from your brother in prison. Um, before we get to the circumstances around your arrest, I wanted to ask you about your experience in prison. Um, like you just said, Allah has denied any kind of reading material. How important were books for you in prison? Uh, books were essential. I, mean, I I relied on two things: uh, books and the radio. Um, the books were the only thing that would actually, you know, have your have your mind engaged in and would take you elsewhere. Like kind of for a moment there, you can forget your context. Uh, my day was was like. My whole coping mechanisms were about around the idea that I had a book. So, so when I only had one book for 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 a week, I would I would see how many pages that book has, and I and I would make sure to not finish it before the weekends. And so, and I would like plan my whole day around because this is the, that was the only event that you know, something happens here in the book. Uh, and so, 
the two hours, for example, that I had for reading, that, that's how I, I organized my day. Uh, at first, when I had like little, I didn't have many books, uh, I, I, would, I would try to, to put, uh, to, the reading time would be like at the end of the day, so that I have something to look forward to throughout the day. Um, I, I don't know how Ale is living really because all of the coping mechanisms that I used in, in my past experiences really relied on stuff that, that Ale is not allowed. Can you explain to people what incarceration is like in Egypt? How does the prison system work? Oh, okay. It's, um, so I don't know how it is in other countries, but there is no system like the infrastructure and, and, and that's not talking about political prisons. That's about everybody. There is no system for the person. You know, they don't allow you anything to, to live with. So you have to really rely on your family or whoever visits you for everything. You're only allowed like uh, one piece of clothes. It's like a dress. Uh, it's it's very it's very light, and that's what they give you when you go at, uh, at, at the gate, and that's it. They just leave you. So, I mean, all the details. So think of, for example, food. Um, I, I'm I was kind of lucky to have my 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 family who are visiting me, but other people don't have like their families either don't have people who can visit them, but or or their families don't have enough resources of, or money because it, it's very it's it, prison costs a lot a lot of time and energy for the whole family. So I, I was going to tell you an example. So think of food. I was uh, for example uh, most of the times in in my cell we had we were around twenty in the cell sometimes more, sometimes less. And four of us would be the people who, who visit. So 20 people here rely on this monthly visit. That means for my mother that she, she has to cook uh, for 20 people to eat for, for example, a week because we would span the visits around, around the month uh, and, and try to scale that and imagine it on every other detail. Um, and like if you go for a visit, if you want, if you're visiting uh, 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 someone in prison in Egypt, you have to go. You have to start like uh, the process at uh, at eight a.m. while the visit will happen eventually at three p.m. or something. So it it takes the whole day. It takes a lot of a lot of resources to just maintain us alive. It's not part of the system. Ale has been in prison for much of the last decade, uh, and this is these are the worst conditions of any of his imprisonments uh, these past three years. Why do you think the authorities are targeting him? I think many reasons. So uh, probably because of because of his his voice, what he writes, his ideas. Uh, but 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 not only that. I think there is also. There's the the background that our family, the activism background in the family. I think it's it started as this, and also there is the fact that they want to set an example. They are using him to set an example, and they've been building up so much uh, of setting an example with Ali and with our family. So that I mean, even now, if they want to retreat from this position, it's very hard because they have been like building for years. So it's like a snowball effect.
And what do you think is the importance of this book, this tr- collection of uh, Alas writings translated into English uh, that's being published now in the U.S.? Personally, for us, I mean, for Ale and and for me and for us as a family, it's it's really uh, it's important for us personally because um, it, it really mattered with Ale when the book came out. The, the the British publication. I was I was also in prison, and I was really happy to hear about it because well, part of the reason why Ale is in prison is 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 these these ideas, and so having these ideas translated and uh, delivered to to a wider audience. And an audience that that still has room for to you know to, to try to make impact or change an audience that have not yet been defeated um, means something means that you're defying the purpose of prison. Uh, so that that is personally, but I also think like uh, the way Alec deals with our defeat, it's very I I see I find it very brave. So we we all. Um, we're all aware that we're defeated, but most of us really, at least me, uh, don't have the guts to face the defeat. So I, tr- I try to, like, I, I don't remember 2011. I'm, I just, I, I just, I try to forget that face, forget that, that there was a moment of possible change because it's too hard. Alec does something bold here, and he, he, he thinks he, thinks there is value in facing our defeat and in. And that there are lessons here from our defeat that could be inspiring to others. And that's why I think the book is important for the reader. Uh, Naomi, you wrote the foreword to Alet's book. Um, in your opening sentence, you write, the text you're holding is living history. Explain what you mean and what you see the value in getting Alet's voice out, why you chose to write the foreword for this book. Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Sharif. It's it's so good to see you again. And Sanad, I want to express my deepest sympathy for the torment that your family has gone through and is still going through. As we, as we know, incarceration is a form of collective punishment for the entire community and family and designed to be there, be so. Ruthie, it's uh, such an honor to be in conversation with you as well. Uh, I can think of few other people from whom I've learned so much over the years. Um, as you heard, we're here to call for Allah's immediate release from prison and should he choose from Egypt. Let there be no mistake. He is a political prisoner punished for his speech, for his organizing, for his leadership role in Egypt's stolen revolution. The charges are absurd and without merit designed only to display just how ruthless the regime is willing to be towards one of its highest profile critics. And to answer your question, Sharif, I think the book is living history because of the sheer effort it took on Allah's part and on the part of his entire community to bring it into being. Tactics like the ones he is experiencing can backfire. Uh, I'll give one example. Egypt is set to host, of all things, the next United Nations Climate Summit. The one that just happened in Glasgow is set to happen in Egypt uh, in less than a year's time. CC must know that the stakes of this continuing outrage is escalating humiliation on the world stage. This is not going away. The spotlight will only shine brighter and brighter. So we're here to call for Allah's release, but 
also to celebrate, as you heard the publication of this remarkable book, You Have Not Yet Been Defeated, Allah's Prison Diaries. When I was asked to write the foreword by Omar Robert Hamilton, another wonderful Egyptian writer, uh, the book had not yet been translated into English, so I couldn't read it, but I said yes uh, for political reasons, out of solidarity with a comrade who had helped lead the revolutionary struggle to overthrow Mubarak. But then a few months later, the actual manuscript arrived and the nature of my commitment to this project changed. My reasons were not only political anymore, but also very much intellectual and literary. Uh, in short, I was just profoundly moved, bowled over by what I read, by the sheer force of Allah's uncageable mind, by his prescience, by his political commitments, by the endlessly original ways that he finds to express disdain for tyrants, liars, and cowards. But most of all, uh, as Sana alluded to, I was struck by what Allah has to tell us about revolutions, why most fail, what it feels like when they do, and perhaps how they might still succeed. It is an analysis rooted as much in a keen understanding of popular culture, digital technology, and collective emotion as it is in experiences confronting tanks and consoling the families of martyrs. I'll share just a few of the things that struck me most in reading the book. Um, and I really hope that, that those of you who are watching take the opportunity to order the book and read it really closely. I think it's such an important text for anybody engaged in political organizing. Um, in 2019, Ala managed to get out of prison on probation for a handful of months. Um, and so it had just been a, a couple of years, but he was staggered by how rapidly political discourse had degenerated during his years of incarceration. Um, he wondered when did serious adults start communicating with pictograms? When did emojis and GIFs become a serious form of political communication or substitute for it? Why was there so little actual discourse, engaged people building on each other's knowledge of history and current events to create shared meaning? He wrote, uh, getting out of jail, I feel like we're going back to the Stone Age. Uh, and he, a, a few more things he said in this period, this medium is stifling. It's very strange that the entire world knows, and here's, he's, refer he's referring to social media, Facebook and Twitter, it's very strange that the entire world knows that these tools and mediums are defective and they have no faith in them and are suspicious of them, but they keep using them. There's a need for an alternate imagination. He went on, I feel like there has been a regression, even in two-way conversation, not just collective, in the ability to deal with complex topics. So that was 2019. You can imagine what he might say about Elon Musk's bid to buy Twitter. I was struck that Allah, as you heard, no technophobe, a programmer by training, somebody with a million Twitter followers, was far ahead of the curve in understanding that despite the euphoric claims of Facebook revolutions and Twitter uprisings, he knew that social media companies were no partners or allies to people like him. He came to activism as a teen in the late 90s and 2000s when the internet as a movement tool was still young. This was a time when email lists and indie media networks were weaving together emergent movements across continents and oceans, 
converging to show solidarity for Palestine and the Zapatistas, to oppose corporate globalization from Seattle to Genoa to Porto Alegre, and to try to stop the 2003 US-UK invasion and occupation of Iraq. And yet in his own life, he'd watched these network technologies filled with so much potential for solidarity and new forms of internationalism turn into tools of aggressive surveillance and social control, with big tech collaborating with repressive regimes, governments using kill switches to black out the internet mid-uprising, and bad faith actors seizing an out-of-context tweet to slander reputations of activists and make them markedly easier to imprison, which is something he experienced himself. <clears throat> um, in 2011, I stress this more than a decade ago, addressing RightsCon at the height of the sort of techno euphoria about Twitter uprisings and Facebook revolutions, he told this Silicon Valley group, what needs to happen is a revolution. What needs to happen is a complete change in the order of things so that we are making these amazing products and we're making a living, but we're not trying to monopolize and we're not trying to control the internet. <clears throat> and we're not trying to control users, and we're not complicit with governments. So for me, the most powerful part of the prison writings are the places <clears throat> where Allah does something very rare in the canon of movement writing, and that is look squarely at how much has been lost and why. I've often been struck by how hard it is from inside a movement's nucleus to even know when a revolutionary moment has passed. <clears throat> Among core organizers, there are still meetings, there are still strategy sessions. Um, and we leftists have been known to spend years staggering around inside the husks of our former movements, <clears throat> unaware that we have been drained of the animating life force. Sorry, I'm just I just need to cough for a second, so I'm just gonna go on mute. Um, I'm going to pass it over to Ruthie soon. Um, <clears throat> I found it very moving that despite where he is, Allah does not give in to either easy boosterism for the movement that was or self-indulgent doomerism. He recognizes the movement's glories, honors the life-altering experiences of collective power in Tahrir Square, but he's also self-critical. Um, about what he describes as a failure to articulate a common dream of what we wanted Egypt to be. And it was not for lack of trying or ideas. That's the other thing that comes through in the pages of the book. Allah was deeply inspired by reading about the process that developed the Freedom Charter in South Africa during the darkest days of apartheid. And he had a vision for how the movement that found its wings in Tahrir Square could fan out across the country and engage in what he described as intensive discussions with thousands of citizens to democratically develop a vision for Egypt's collective future, but they never got a chance. But Allah adds to this stark assessment, the revolution did break a regime. It defeated much of Mubarak's machine and the new junta that took its place, while even more brutal, is also precarious for the thinness of its domestic support. Openings, he tell us, remain. And so we must use them, find the pressure points, 
press as hard as we can, including from outside Egypt, especially as it prepares to host this major international summit on a subject that is inextricable from human rights. Because as Allah tells us, we have not yet been defeated. Thank you. Thank you, Naomi. Um, Ruthie, uh, as we talk about Ale and his um, imprisonment, you've spent decades uh, writing and thinking and organizing around the politics of uh, prison abolition. And you're known as a pioneer in forging the idea of carceral geography. Can you explain what that is and how we can be thinking about prison abolition? Sure, and thank you. And and like um, Naomi, I'm really pleased to have been invited to participate in this conversation. It's the second time I've had a chance to talk about Allah's book. I, I also participated in a launch of the uh, UK publication. And I'm delighted and um, honored to be uh, in discussion with everybody this afternoon. So carceral geography is a way to think about the kind of expanded snares of unfreedom that have stretched over a good deal of the planet's surface, not always in the same way, um, to sort of hold down the sorts of disorder that crisis of various kinds produces. So the crisis includes climate change, climate crisis, it includes political economic crisis, it includes the crises that are attached to people rising up to demand their own liberty and freedom, all of these things and more. And it also kind of fits into a very um, particular niche in many, many, many people's consciousness, which is goes something like this. In the context of so much disorder, where people experience so much uncertainty, the existential dread that clouds so much judgment makes prison and criminalization and organized violence seem like a possible solution to the problems that those things, prisons and organized violence and criminalization, actually only make worse. Um, so as Sana was telling us, for people who are locked in prison in Egypt, um, the conditions are terrible for all, uh, whatever um, uh, judgment uh, sent people into those um, cages. And I've talked with people who have been in prison in the United States and in Turkey and in um, uh, Egypt and Algeria, in South Africa and Brazil and in India, uh, several states in India. And the stories are always quite similar across um, various regimes. One is that the entire process of putting people into prison for part or all of their lives is a practice of human sacrifice that not only sacrifices the lives of the people inside, but again, as Naomi pointed out, and as Sana made so clear, um, draws on the resources and depletes the resources of entire families and communities. And those resources are not only the material resources of food and the money to buy it and the ability to get to the prison to, 
to circulate food, but also the emotional and almost the moral resources we need to um, continue to be in community together, fragments communities, fragments lives. So I thought I'd take a few minutes, if you don't mind, to talk, to tell a little bit of a story about a hunger strike that happened inside a California prison so that that might illustrate the connection um, between and across different kinds of people across um, time and space. As some of you might know, there was a very um, uh, vigorous hunger strike that um, started in a prison in a prison in California back around the time of the um, revolution in Egypt. And the people in the prison, in the prison, who were sent to that, to those uh, places because they were accused of being members of prison gangs or doing other forbidden things while prisoners, decided that they would try to get some kind of minimal relief for the terrible experience that they had. So they started a hunger strike and their demands were really quite modest. They asked that they ha could have um, a clear path to how they could get themselves exonerated from what they've been charged with so they could go back to the regular prison community, like still be locked up. They asked for decent food because their calorie intake was so minimal and they were suffering physically and mentally because of bad nutrition. And the third thing they asked was to have more uh, regular family visits. The family visits were very few and far between. And this particular prison is so remote in the state of California that it's very difficult for anybody to get there, even if they are authorized to visit someone locked up. And during the course of that hunger strike, um, prisoners who were not in the in the prison, but who decided to be in solidarity, joined the strike. And at some point, maybe 30,000 people uh, were participating in it. And there were people who did not make it. The prison authorities said, okay, okay, we will talk with you. We will reconsider our, our policies. We will do something to change the conditions that you are suffering un under. And I should say, that as is the case for Allah and other people who are locked up, there was a whole lot of solidarity across. So people were paying attention, listening, using the grapevine, using whatever we could to amplify the struggle inside. Well, after the prison authorities considered, and I say that in square scarecrows, what the prisoners had demanded, they said, well, we don't really have to do anything. You've stopped the strike we're not going to change. The strike started again. And at this point, the prisoners were very, very aware of things that had been happening in Egypt, things that had been happening in Ferguson in the United States, the con connections that were made between um, activists in Palestine and activists on the ground in, third, in Ferguson. They learned many things because in part, they did have access to radio, and also because the grapevine worked very well 
to carry word informally that couldn't be presented formally. And when they decided to bring their second strike to a very dramatic close, what happened was the people in Pelican Bay State Prison Security Housing Unit, instead of sending their demands upward to the prison authorities, sent them outward to their communities inside and outside prison, starting with their demand to end hostility between and among the races. And just to make clear for people who don't know, there are all different kinds of people in prison in the United States. Many imagine black people and white people, there are brown people, there are different ethnicities. And the organization of the prison system within it has been um, uh, uh, structured by the prison uh, authorities such that people are compelled to come in contact with others who they might be likely to fight. So this decision on the part of the hunger strikers to use the torture of prison against prison turned into one of the most um, uh, open-ended calls for solidarity that we have seen anywhere in the streets and gives us a lot of um, enthusiastic hope that this solidarity will turn into further solidarity across prison walls. If you are enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Revolutionary Rehearsals in the Neoliberal Age, edited by Colin Barker, Gareth Dale, and Neil Davidson. This ambitious volume examines revolutionary situations during a non-revolutionary historical conjuncture, the neoliberal era. The last three decades have seen an increase in the number of political upheavals that challenge existing power structures, many of them taking the form of urban revolts. This book compellingly explores a series of such upheavals, from Eastern Europe to Sub-Saharan Africa to Latin America, and also engages in the theorization of revolution today. As Tithi Bhattacharya puts it, the book is not a wistful history about what could have been. Rather, it is a strategic assessment of near victories to prepare us for the fire next time. Find revolutionary rehearsals in the neoliberal age at haymarketbooks.org. Thank you, Rusi. Um, since, well, since we're talking about the hunger strikes, I'd like to ask you, Sanet, you're no stranger to hunger strikes yourself. You went on hunger strike in 2014 uh, for 73 days. Can you talk about what, it, what it's like to go on hunger strike, both physically and psychologically? What kind of agency uh, does it give you? Um, and how does, it, how does it feel to do that in prison? Psychologically, it's the decision itself is very empowering because your body is the one thing you have control over. Anything else is just out of your control. Uh, but um, so the strike I did and the strike Ale is doing now, uh, we learned that from the Palestinians. I don't know how it's if they originally or not, but that we learned it from the Palestinians, and it's that we basically take water and salt. Or like a salt solution. Uh, so the salt regulates um, 
your blood pressure and therefore maintains you alive for, for a longer time. And so um, the first phase, there's the normal hunger, like uh, like anybody who, have, who hasn't eaten for a while, so you, you feel hungry. But then <clears throat> uh, somehow kind of the body understands that it's no longer going to get food, so you l- no longer start feeling hungry. And, um, and then the body kind of self-destructs, but um, wisely. Uh, and so you start with, it depends, each phase, it depends on your body. But uh, so you start with like the extra calories. And that's, that's not a very painful process. It's, uh, you feel tired, but it's not very painful. The, the, the painful process, and, and that happened to me in, in the end, and I couldn't endure it is when you're out of like extra calories and start breaking muscles, but it starts to break muscles to, to, to produce energy. And so this is a very painful process. And, uh, and I remember in this phase, this phase and the one after it, like that's when I, I was breaking, I, I broke my strike after the, at the end of this phase. Uh, it, you, you're, you're not very conscious. Like I, after I broke my strike, my cellmates used to tell me stuff. That I, I thought I was conscious at the time, but it turned out that I really wasn't. I, I missed a lot of things. I And it seemed as if I was conscious, but uh, you, you, your realization of like what's happening and what's not is uh, gets like disturbed. And it's very painful for the body. Although from the outside, you might look like you're alive. You look tired, but you look alive. But internally, something is really disruptive happening. Um, and then afterwards there are the calories between the organs. These are like calories that are maintaining your organs in, in intact. And then afterwards, and I haven't reached this point and I hope Allah doesn't, uh, well, the body actually self-destructs. So he's on day 31, uh, today. Um, you mentioned earlier about the, the visits. They're once a month uh, between a glass barrier on the phone uh, for 20 minutes with one family member. Can you talk about how you organize your time in those 20 minutes? Um, so our technique in my visits is that we, uh, I try to study because I'm the most of my family who's like, most likely to understand anything about technology, not as much as Ale, but like most likely. So I, I try to, uh, before the visit, study as much as possible what's up, what's new with anything, with everything, and uh, and and give him uh, like. A, so we've split the visits in time. So there is a, like the tech brief, and there's the personal brief, and there's the political brief, and there's the local Egyptian sad brief, and then we have like a few minutes at the end where. We can just chill and be brother and sister. And uh, he he's developed. Alaa has this way of adapting and of like trying to make a, an opportunity of any space that is allowed to him. So he's like when he gets into the visit, he's like in a very um, fast mode. He's like, give me input, give me input, and I speak very fast. I'm like, <laughs> so uh, I think he's he I think he kind of prepares himself that he he wants to make his brain a sponge right now and like. <laughs> absorb as much input as and he gets really frustrated when like I haven't read something or I forgot to <laughs> when he asks a question we like oh I don't remember that. Um so yeah we have this technique of splitting the visit. 
Um, Ale was sentenced to five years and got out in early 2019. As part of that sentence, he had another five years of probation. And what that meant in Egypt was that he had to turn himself into a police station every day at 6 p.m. and would only get out at 6 a.m. So 12 hours a day in a police station. Um, and he was supposed to do that for another five years, but he was eventually uh, arrested from the police station in September of 2019 and thrown into prison where he remains. Uh, can you talk about that period? Uh, how was he coping uh, with this kind of half freedom? So, well, first you have to understand that um, getting out of prison is also a process. It's not an easy thing. Like some people get really traumatized from because it's not it's not like a switch of a button. <clears throat> you're you're for for a long time you, you don't control anything in your <clears throat> in your environment, and then all of a sudden there are many even the little things. So should I keep the door open or closed? Or should I switch the light or not? I mean, if suddenly you have so many things. You know, it's it's quite overwhelming. Uh, so I, I I saw Ale, I saw this happening to Ale, like a mini version of this process every day. So at the end of the day, before six, at like four p.m., you you see him. He starts to kind of um, his body language just change. He's he's starting to readapt his mind that he's going to prison, and in the beginning of the day, he's, he's trying to do the reverse process. And and there was something very harsh about it. But in prison, you get kidnapped, like you, you get arrested. You don't willingly go every day and put yourself in prison. So it it was very harsh. I, it was very harsh for even for all of us, for him, of course, more. So I, well, we were worried that something would happen to him, which happened, which actually happened later. So. One of us, one of us, the family members would go with him to the prison, uh, to the uh, police station, and someone uh, would be waiting for him at 6 a.m. Uh, so when I used to go with him, uh, so he would turn himself in, and it it was it was a very harsh time where you know you're walking around with him and you're gonna leave him there and he's going in again to that dark place, um, but. In spite of all of that, we had a lot of quality time. He managed to do a lot of things. He managed to rebuild his, uh, build, not rebuild because his son was so young when he was in, uh, in, in prison. Uh, he managed to build a, a very strong relationship with his son. He managed, and he just fit perfectly in our lives. And he even managed to, <clears throat> to work, to, to get back on his feet a little bit and work. So, the small, this is what happens with Ali all the time. The, even the small windows that are open to him, he really takes advantage of the advantage of. Uh, Naomi, I wanted to come to you, but did you have a question for Sanet that you wanted to ask? Yeah, I did. <clears throat> um, I mentioned before that this book was born of many layers of risks um, taken by Ali and the wider community. Um, and I'm just wondering what the reaction has been, um, if any, uh, and, and I, I read that the conditions are, are, have been getting worse and I'm, I'm just wondering, is he being punished for this book? Is, um, is it unrelated? 
you're never sure, but I don't think Ale would want us to think this way. Um, I mean, he's already he's already being punished for a very absurd thing and things that he hasn't done, but just like a, a sort of a payback or, 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 or as an example for others. And so, and his conditions are from day one of this arrest were, were the worst. And the moment he was arrested, they like tortured him uh, uh, at uh, entering the prison. And so they are just escalating with our family. And I, I think it's, it, it would be like paralyzing to try and uh, to, to be concerned about this. The, they, the, the regime chooses to escalate and the regime, regime chose from the beginning to make this personal. And so I don't want us to be concerned about that. I think it it is a value that we 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 keep resisting, and it's something that would make Alep proud, uh, and, and it would make his 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 time in prison meaningful. I mean, the worst thing is to to make all of these sacrifices for nothing, you know. Um, Naomi, as we, you know, the Alas imprisonment comes kind of uh, amid a very powerful counter-revolutionary wave um, in the in the Arab world, and his incarceration is very symbolic of uh, that wave. But you've written um, in your foreword that Ale is, you know, was part of this left internationalist anti-sectarian youth-led movement that's part of a global confrontation with transnational capital and its national organs. So can you talk a little more about the connections between these movements around the world and how they've progressed or regressed over this past decade since the Egyptian revolution? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I was struck by the writings in the book, the memories of going to Palestine, of, um, of, 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 of protesting against uh, the, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Um, uh, this, like I mentioned, that sort of um, the early internet um, and uh, the the early movement internet and 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 the promise that it held out, and also this the, the potential it offered for this for the for this kind of unprecedented ongoing networking um, and conversation, and certainly you know being I, I'm sure. You, you know those days when when the the squares in Europe were being occupied, and um, and and Tahrir was occupied, and then Occupy Wall Street happened. There was a flow that of people and ideas happening all the time. Um, the U.S. was very late to the game, right, in terms of responding to the two. These were sort of aftershocks of the two thousand and eight financial crisis um, of various kinds. And interestingly, it came latest to where it all started, right? It, it came, Occupy was 2011, the crash was 2008. Um, and if I'm getting my dates right, yeah, I think I am. Um, so, I mean, this is why, you know, what I write in the foreword that the model that Ella shows of being willing to look at defeats, right? I mean, these are not final defeats. There's not a moment where you say, okay, it's over, it's all done. Um, but being willing to step back and say, what can we learn from this? Um, 
it's something that I think we do too rarely in movement circles. And part of it is that sometimes it's hard to know, especially if you happen to be in the middle of a, of a, of a revolution, in the middle of a movement, because the most dedicated activists keep are, remain active. They, they keep going to the meetings. They keep, you know, doing all the things. And it's just all the people that are missing, right? And, and because it's always a little bit mysterious, why it happened in the first place, Sharif. I mean, I remember seeing you a little while before the Egyptian revolution, and I don't think you could have predicted that, you know, I remember us talking about Mubarak, and it just seemed unmovable, right? I mean, and so there's always a strange alchemy, right? All you can do is kind of be ready for when that moment happens, those effervescent moments. Um, but I think it's not enough to just be ready for the moment. It's also, you know, when the when 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 the tide recedes, to be willing to look. And I think that there's a lot of busy work in the NGO industrial complex, as uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore <laughs> once told us. <laughs> um, and there's a way in which that complex, I think. Um, militates against that kind of examination because there's always grants to write and meetings to have and this sort of like the busy work of of, of organizing so that so that you don't actually have those moments of reckoning right when you say okay what can we learn from this and so i i do have this hope that 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 this huge contribution that allah has made um to these networked movements, and 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 he is fiercely internationalist, and and sees himself as part of these global uprisings, um, and I'm very critical of nationalism. I mean, some of the, some of the some of the writing that I found most moving was he talks about what happens when you when a movement lets in the forces of nationalism and machismo, you know, um, and how it can be very seductive in those moments, because these are such potent forces. But he warns, you will not be able to control the, the beast that is unleashed. Once you start, it, it will ride you, you will not ride it, you know, and I thought that was such a rare insight from a male revolutionary. <laughs> um, but these are these are these are our old, old battles. Yeah, just a, a few thoughts off the top of my head. Um, well, Ruthie, as we talk about this, um, you know, you've written a lot about the need for oppositional work. What is effective oppositional work uh, to your mind? You say that there can sometimes be a lethal synthesis of abandoned optimism and calculated convenience. What do you mean by that? And what do you think is actually effective? Sorry, I couldn't un unmute myself. Um, What do I think? What what I think is that um, a couple of things that Allah raises in his book that um, Naomi has been gesturing toward is essential for us. Uh, they are essential for us to spend a bit of time and thought with. And one has to do with, as Naomi was saying, kind of a, a, taking seriously whatever defeats we have um, encountered in whatever struggle we're engaged in and think about why it is we lost that thing without stopping everything. So avoiding the busy work 
and um, keeping some kind of bitter optimism hard at work, I think are both essential. And the second thing, which is related, is to figure out in whatever we do, how to push away the constantly narrowing frame that is most actively shaping consciousness and minds by way of things like social media, right? That, that those quick takes on everything really militate against being able to do anything. And I understand, and I hope people don't think I don't understand, that many people who are very good and very public with quick takes are also behind the scenes doing the deep and complex and extensive work. I understand that. But there's something going on with our um, capacity to pay attention and notice that gets in the way of our capacity to do the sorts of things that I think there are, you know, billions of people on the planet either doing or getting ready to do. And so I'm constantly looking to already existing organized people who are quite agile while growing like the MST or quite um, focused, but with the sort of uh, local, regional, nation state, global, constant dynamic in mind, like the National Nurses Union and Global Nurses United, or um, uh, places like, you know, the state of Kerala that has um, managed against all odds to have a development program that's not tied to growth which, you know, kind of gets us back to one of the problems that we are talking about uh, indirectly, if not directly, and that is the problem of how capitalism saves capitalism from capitalism. And certainly carceral geography is the residue as well as the ground for the next round of that kind of saving. Um, it's not everything, but it's a lot. Um, I had another thought and I lost it, so I, I will pause. Well, let me ask you, Sena, about, we mentioned at the top that um, Ale gained British citizenship uh, a few months ago, so did uh, you and your sister through your mother, uh, who was born in London. What opportunities um, does this open for you, for Ale? I think it it, it it could be like a game changer. Uh, it, it opens finally a window where where, where it, it might be actually possible for us to free him. And so um, and, a new territory where we can try. And, and um, now there is another government, a more democratic government responsible for him. So this is, this is a government that, that, uh, that, that should uh, we should put pressure on, and uh, and I'm I'm sure with enough pressure uh, and support, the Brits uh, are capable of negotiating uh, a solution. You know, uh, um, Britain and Egypt are allies, uh, <clears throat> and and there is a. a there is precedence before for like dual citizens, uh, the, uh, uh, and there are other uh, governments negotiating further. Uh, and so I'm really hopeful now 
uh, on a personal level. Of course, that's uh, it's it's just a, a lucky coincidence that my mom was born in London because my grandmother was doing a PhD. Not everybody has this coincidence. But uh, on a personal level now, I'm hopeful and that's new. Also, as we talk about prison, um, so you were in prison three times in different periods. Did you see a change in prison conditions and who was being imprisoned alongside you? Um, you know, what do you think the role of prisons uh, is in Egypt and how it's changed through your experience? The role, like the, whether it works or not, or like the role or the conditions, how it's working. Conditions, yeah. Yeah, oh, it's, it's so throughout, like my first, my first imprisonment was in 2014. It's, it keeps worsening. It's, uh, it's really deteriorating um, because they've made active, partly because they've made active decisions. So, for example, in my last imprisonment, um, I, I, I was always imprisoned in the same place. Uh, twice in the same cell. The third time was like a cell right next to it. So it was, it's in the same prison. Uh, but my, last time they had like uh, opened, built a new office for state security. State security is, <clears throat> it's an agency that's more like secret police. So, so these officers that are, that are here, they, on the paper, they don't exist. Like officially they don't exist. We shouldn't know their names. Uh, but, but they control everything, everything related to uh, political uh, prisoners. And, and they, they are becoming more official, like not on paper, but they have like their own office that's built for them. And they have now. So back in 2014, they would not enter the prison. They would, uh, state security would, uh, at least for the girls, would either take you uh, at your arrest before uh, before, like, uh, you go to prosecution, or uh, uh, would take you uh, uh, while uh, you're released, but they would n they never had like uh, access to inside the, at least the women's prison. Now they they not only have access, but they have like an office and an official thing. And I had like I had a guy who was responsible for me, so he was like he was responsible for everything, not not just not just what comes into the visits, like the books or the letters, but also if I had the problem in plumbing, I would talk to the state security. The the normal guards are now like they 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 don't have any authority. So partly because of active decisions they've made, the conditions are worsening, but also because of the numbers. The numbers inside are, are much higher. And so even if they wanted to, they they, they wanted to to if they didn't want to like uh, to to worsen the conditions, it's not feasible with those numbers. You have to stuff so many people inside. So um, the the cell right next to me was the um, uh, death sentence cell. So it's it's um, split into six smaller cells that are supposed to be solitary. And back in 2014, when I was first uh, uh, arrested, uh, these small solitary cells each contained two. Uh, now some of them contain seven and eight. So that is the scale of, and and, and they are inhumane for one person. I, I have, I really have no idea how, how, how the cell of eight, how, how do they, how, how do they even physically fit? Like, I don't know. 
Um, I just want to remind uh, people watching, if you have a question, you can put it in the chat. We'll leave the last 15 minutes uh, to look at some of those questions. Uh, Naomi, did you want to ask Sanet uh, something? Yeah, um, maybe you as well, Sharif. Um, but I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit more about what kinds of international pressure might be uh, might be effective and what might not be effective. You know, um, regimes like CCs are, are are complex, and some forms of pressure can backfire. Um, and so I realize that maybe it might be complicated for Sina to answer this question, but um, I'm wondering about the UN climate summit that's coming up. And if there's a rule that you can imagine for climate activists, these are huge conferences and people travel. Should they? Should they go? Should they be making demands? Uh, should governments be saying they'll only come if uh, political prisoners are released? Are there politics that we need to understand about calling only for Allah's release and not other prisoners? What can you tell us? Okay, I, I just want to tell you something uh, like from my own experience about what what impact, because I know that Egypt can be very misleading because of how bad things are, and that it could seem like the Egyptian regime has developed thick skin, but it, that is not true. I, or at least I, I don't believe that's true from my own experience. So uh, when I was arrested um, th this last time, it, it seemed from, I was beaten before my arrest and th that was an escalation. And, um, and the whole thing seemed like, and even the language like the state security officers with me seemed like this would be the very, a very harsh, uh, uh, one. And, and the pattern, uh, with others, and this is also what I had expected for myself was to stay in pretrial detention for, for eight, two years before I even get to meet a judge or, or a prosecutor or anything. And something happened, something changed. A shift happened that I even noticed like inside my prison, even with the language of the state security officer, I was just talking about who was like responsible for my case. Uh, all of a sudden he had been, like, the, his normal language would be like threatening me, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden he, he, he was like, Miss Sané, do you have any, um, uh, com uh, complaints about the conditions or the, the language change. So I, I, I'm just telling you that because I, I, I have personal experience where impact matter. It, it happens, you know. Um, what happened on the outside was that uh, friends managed to make a campaign and to convince some celebrities to sign a petition uh, uh, for my release and. Afterwards, I went to court and I, I got like the year and a half sentence. But given the, the, the whole, the, the context, uh, I, I was lucky to kind of to have a clear end for my, uh, my incarceration in the, in, the, in the first month. So I, I, what I, I want to say is that don't be misled by the, the, the deterioration because their plan is, is far much worse. Um, we just saw like a, a, an economic researcher, Ayman Hadhoud, who died in, in incarceration. And from people who are inside, we don't really suspect that they they wanted to kill him. It, maybe things got out of hand because things are, get, are really getting out of hand. Like the numbers, as I was telling you, and it's very hard to control the incarceration facilities. Um, and and 
and they understand that there is no like the 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 guards and the officers they understand that there is no consequences so so things are getting out of hand but i always try to remind remind myself that uh, their purpose like their dream is to make us all like ayman so the fact that some of us are out some of us are still operating that uh, a place like madam master is still working even if it's it's, it's an um, independent news outlet even if it's being like banned and you have to open it in vpn in egypt but the fact that they're still operating means that um the pushback is working it's, and so we we don't have the actually leverage to stop that pushback <laughs> please don't <laughs> this is that for i think i would just uh Just to clarify one thing, when Sanet was referring to feeling lucky that she was referred to trial and getting a sentence is because the vast majority of people in prison right now in Egypt are being held in pretrial detention. They're being held without ever being convicted of a crime. Under Egypt's penal code, you can uh, be held in pretrial detention for two years, which Alet was before he was uh, convicted. And many people, if they want to keep you past that two-year limit, they just file a new case against you with new charges. and it resets the pretrial detention clock and you're in this labyrinth that you can't get out of so getting a conviction was very rare that she was referred to trial quickly and we suspect it was because of this uh, public campaign about the climate change conference in november what we do understand is that um uh, you know the, the cherry on the cake for cc is to meet face to face with president biden he hasn't been accorded uh, this yet um which is very different from his relationship with Trump. Uh Biden also didn't call CC when Biden after his inauguration for many weeks. Uh, he eventually did after Egypt negotiated a truce between Hamas and Israel uh in May. So uh, certainly and Sanak correct me if I'm wrong but the family sees this period up until the climate change conference and and up to it as very crucial. It's a moment where pressure can be put and and should be put because i think for many people when egypt was granted uh, to be the place for the climate change conference it came as uh, a source of heavy disappointment um but it's also um a source of opportunity as well um and so yeah i would ask you you know me actually uh, you know you've done so much work in the climate justice movement what do you think um egypt hosting this conference means and 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 what opportunities or challenges it presents well this is why i was sort of asking for some guidance because i don't think people should just kind of come up with their demands out of the blue right like like I, there, there there could be a refusal to to participate there could be a refusal to send delegations of uh, uh, of activists uh unless they're prisoner releases um and it's compl- you know one of the things that's complicated is that there have not been nearly enough of these summits in the global south um and the and in uh, egypt is very very vulnerable as you know um and it's an opportunity to connect So I think that, I think that the risk is that there will be a lot of repression in Egypt ahead of the summit that many more people who could potentially embarrass uh uh the Egyptian government for its fossil fuel projects and so on um would 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 face severe repression. So 
I, I, I'm not sure. It's it's interesting to note that the last time there was going to be a UN climate summit in the global south was in Chile um, in in 2019, and there was an uprising um, right ahead, and they had to pull out. Interestingly, it's worth remembering what sparked the uprising in Chile, which eventually led to a new constitution, a new government, you know, a left, you know, a left government. Um, the Chilean government wanted Chile to be such a green beacon, right, that they that they that they and impress the world that they spent a, a, a whole bunch of money on electric buses, among other things. But because because of the legacy of Pinochet and the fact that there was a there was never an undoing of many of the most neoliberal policies that were introduced by the Chicago boys in Chile. It, 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 it was illegal to do an expenditure like that without passing the costs on to consumers. So at the same so, so to pay for their shiny electric bus fleet, they increased the cost of public transit. Um, and that, if you remember, it was a slight increase in subway and bus fares that led to, that was like the final straw and there was a huge uprising. Chile was on fire and ultimately Pinera had to say, "Don't come. We don't want the summit." And then the pandemic happened, and so on. But 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 it wouldn't have happened in Chile, even even if it were not for that. <clears throat> um, so these things can be very volatile, but they they can go they can go in a few ways. And and I think it would actually be good for there to be more communication, um, you know, within with, with rights activists in Egypt um, and in exile about what the right set of demands should be. I, um, my comment on the COP is that y- you know best because this is your cause, right? Like, like the, the cause that you guys have been working on. And um, so you know best whether the best thing is to n- not participate or participate. But but I do agree with Sharif that there is an opportunity here and the U.S. has leverage because of this. And, and this leverage should be used not at, uh, in November, but like building up until November, and um, and it's in our all interest if 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 this uh, COP was taken seriously, whether this is through uh, participating and, and trying to make it uh, to make something valuable out of it, using this medium or through boycotting. This is I, I wouldn't know, but uh, but yeah, I. The, the, it, it's, it is one of the reasons why we, we think there is a window. Um, I, I'm not sure with Alex health and with the strike if he will be able to make it to November. But uh, but but I know that but uh, that uh, that COP is uh, is a, is a reason why it opens a possibility for us. Yeah, and I, I want us to to take advantage of that, of course. And, and just for people listening, COP is the Conference of the Parties. Yeah. Um, Although yeah. they often go together, COPs and COP. And this one is a, an important one, right? This is a particular... Uh, well, Ruthie, before we go to some questions, um, I so in, in Egypt, we've you know, over the past 10 years, there's been something like two or three dozen new prisons built. And actually in... September, uh, the government announced this, you know, with a big kind of lot of pomp and circumstance, this new human rights strategy 
um, to kind of present a new face to the world. But uh, as part of that speech, uh, Sisi also said, inaugurated a new prison complex in Wadi Natrun in the desert, this kind of with a very glitzy video about this prison complex and said that, uh, you know, Egypt would be establishing seven or eight, quote, American style prisons uh, in Egypt. And I know that you've written about how prisons provide a solid basis on which states are reorganizing themselves. What is this reorganization? What is, is there? You see a shift happening around policing and prisons and how states uh, reorganize. Yeah, that's a great question. And obviously, in the case of Egypt, as is the case in the United States and elsewhere, the states have been reorganizing themselves and the rise and consolidation of uh, police power and its kind of instantiation in the landscape in the form of prison after prison after prison shows us that reorganization. So, and then that becomes the ground for the next round of building or tweaking that um, uh, built environment of Armageddon. So one of the people in, in, in our audience asked, well, are there any um, exchanges material or in terms of strategies between the carceral regimes in Egypt and the U.S. And I want to say that the example that you just gave, that Egypt has built American-style prisons, is indicative of the circulation of all kinds of social and political actors around the planet. There are people who are global consultants who um, try uh, to show repressive regimes how to appear to be not repressive in their policing practice. And Bill Bratton from the United States is probably the consultant in chief of that, that movement. There is the kind of tweak Armageddon human rights um, line that proposes, oh, if only prisons elsewhere were more like US prisons. I mean, this, this style we, we see pop up all over the uh, place, then prisoners life and limb would be less vulnerable, even though in the U.S. prisoners die all the time, um, suffering premature death from things that can be dealt with. So it's not um, possible for any prison to be something that's conducive to the to to life and care. There was a huge um, struggle in Turkey back the last time that Turkey was trying very very hard to get you know, its first foot into the door of becoming part of the EU, where the EU judgment authorities from Brussels said to Turkey, and we don't like your death penalty and we don't like your prisons. And Turkey said, no problem. We will build American style prisons overnight if that's what you want, because we want in. And we'll end the death penalty tonight if that's what you want, because we want in. Well, people who were in prison in Turkey, particularly in prisons for women, but sort of across the board, um, went on hunger strikes in the 90s to protest the reorganization of the places they were being held against their will into U.S. style prisons because those prisons are organized in very segregated ways in terms of the cells that Sana was describing. And that then undermines the possibility for the people who are 
um, uh, trying to maintain their resilience under conditions of, of, of horror and torture um, to have the community they need to, in order to get by. So I've talked to a lot of people who are particularly um, uh, Kurds and 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 uh, supporters of Kurdish liberation who spent many, many years in Turkish prisons who were part of that movement to uh, re uh, refuse American style prisons. But this circulates and certain, you know, NGOs, um, as we know, circulate all kinds of tweaks that then bring with them incredible onrushes of capital from foundations and, and international financial institutions and so forth. So that, for example, in Basra now, in Iraq, there is not only a gleaming new urban um, city arising in that port city, but also all these new prisons that are being overseen by Eric Prince. I mean, it, it, is, it is a horror of internationalism from above that requires our internationalism from below. That's why I think this gathering is so vital that Allah is trying to get us to think about these things, that his entire political um, uh, development was on the ground of internationalism, and it's what we must do. Whether we're taking advantage of the climate uh, summit to use as a bully pulpit or doing other things. I think we just have about 10, 15 minutes left, but uh, let me go to some of the questions um, from viewers. Uh, this one is probably for you, Sanet. And the question is, it's interesting that the Egyptian government recently released a number of political prisoners, but of course, Alet was not one of them. Can you speak to why these releases were made and why Alet wasn't part of it? Uh, why these releases were made? Uh, again, because they have not developed thick skin. The, the pressure works. Unfortunately, it works on individual cases, uh, and, but it works. Um, Alec will never be on a release list, uh, an easy one. Uh, they have built up so much to set him an example. And now, I'm telling, even if they want to... to uh, uh, a safe face solution to this, which they don't. We uh, we've acquired British Ali has acquired British citizenship since uh, last December, end of last December. So we we gave them four months to see this as an opportunity to save face, and that didn't happen. And so you kind of have to force them to let go of Ali because of his profile, but also but mainly also because of how much they've built up. On creating an example out of uh, Another question is also for you, Sanet. Uh, can you say more about what sort of books were the most helpful to read while you were in prison? And is there any way to help to get literature to other political prisoners? Oh, um, I... It depended. I, I, um, well, books about the incarceration really helped uh, uh, because when you're in an experience and you think like what you're going through is, uh, is so shocking, then you discover that other people have went through that. And, uh, and, uh, and, and so at least it kind of like validates how you feel. Uh, 
because there are many things in you know, uh, prison and also like being isolated from people. I wasn't in solitary, but I, I wasn't like really allowed to have friends. I uh, They would get in trouble if, they, if I had to have, like my relationships had to be from the surface. Uh, um, can can make you quite paranoid. So so the experience of, of other prisoners uh, uh, that, that uh, or things about incarceration were, were very useful. Um, I also kind of because I had access to books, I, uh, I I kind of tried to learn whatever I wanted to learn, but didn't have time for. So I, at some point, I was studying discrete mathematics. I don't know, and comics. Everything helps. Um, I I don't know if there are ways. We have communities that collect books and try to send them in Egypt, but uh, it's becoming harder and harder uh, to get them in. Um, so I I don't know if there are ways like to send. From abroad, but uh, we do have that happening in Egypt, and there are big communities who send out, like uh, uh, collect books. And <clears throat> uh, this question, maybe for uh, Ruthie or Naomi, um, how can we articulate the connection and importance of advocating for the release of political prisoners to other justice struggles and anti-imperialism? Anyone want to take that? Well, I'll take a stab. I, I think that this connection is one that's made over and over again and cannot be um, emphasized um, too much. And I know that you're doing an event um, with Angela Davis. I think you're going, it's in the future. You haven't done it yet. Yes. And, you know, Angela says she was freed by the people. I mean, the world freed her. And the world freed her, but of course she was a prisoner because of her commitment to social justice struggle. And, and so those connections are very clear in a person who is a world historical figure and iconic in, in every way and who has worked tirelessly, you know, every minute of her life to, um, to secure the rights um, and freedoms of people from oppression and injustice. So reminding people that there are long-term political prisoners in many places in the world is urgently important. Um, Mumia Abu-Jamal is one here in the United States who would have been killed 24 years ago if it hadn't been for people taking to the streets. They were ready to execute him. Um, that doesn't, that didn't free him, but it saved his life. And we still struggle for him. But there are many others, including names that we can't say. But we know they're there. Um, Naomi, I wanted to ask you some of what uh, you also write in, in the foreword about Alas writings. You know, some of his most urgent messages. You've, you've talked about some of them that Sirius takes demand intellectual seriousness, um, but also about how bodies and movements are capable of regeneration. Why did that, uh, that touch you and you felt that it was an important message? Well, yes, I mean, it, I'm, people. some people might be surprised to, to read Ella um, quoting Donna Haraway, um, calling for a new, more beautiful kind of monster. Um, 
uh, I'll read you a quote from, from the book. For only the monstrous can hold both the history of dreams and hopes and the reality of defeat and pain together. So this idea of kind of monstrousness as sort of, um, you know, we are organizing in the rubble of our defeats, right? And, and, and that means that there is going to be, um, there's going to be impairment, um, impairment of bodies and, and, and impairment of, of, of nations and impairment of, of the physical world. Um, there's a wonderful writer in Berkeley, um, uh, Sonara Taylor, who, who describes our age as the age of disability. Um, she's a, a, a disabled writer and theorist at University of California, but talks about disability and impairment as really being the default state um, uh, 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 at this moment in history. And so we actually have a lot to learn from the disability rights movement in terms of embracing our monstrousness, embracing impairment, and fighting for justice uh, and care uh, um, within that context. Yeah, so that's kind of the kind of, sort of softness, I think, that makes a lot uh, an evolved kind of movement leader. It's refusal to romanticize or glorify imprisonment or suffering in any way, an insistence on his own, on the fragility of his own body um, and the right to sadness. And yet, no matter the physical and psychic mutilations, his belief that healing and regeneration remain possible. But that is, I think, to me, the final lesson that our movements must urgently defend the integrity of the body, that we must defend all bodies against imprisonment, indefinite detention, torture, rape, and state-sanctioned massacre, because we are human and without a shared belief in the body's right to integrity, transcendent movements will continue to be crushed by the raw power of states willing to inflict violence without limit. And that's how we lose voices like Allah's to the darkness of a prison cell. And it cannot stand. We're just about out of time. Uh, I just wanted to give Sanet the last words. Um, you're here in the US uh, touring, promoting your brother's book and calling for his release. What do you want to leave people with to know? Do you have hope at this point? Well, first, I want to say thank you to all of you. Uh, it's really an honor. And uh, well, thank you also for the solidarity. Um, I, um, I'll, I'll use this time for a more personal uh, message. Uh, on, on a personal level, I think our family now has an opportunity to re reunite in peace. Uh, it's not straightforward. It's not going to be easy. It still needs pressure, but at least there is room for a fight uh, with the British citizenship. So I, uh, so 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 right now. Uh, any help or support uh, would be very useful because we have an, a window open, that, uh, as, a, as we were like saying. Um, uh, that's it. Thank you. And thank you, uh, uh, Ruthie and Naomi, really. And it's a uh, phenomenal. of course, but I'm very used to, <laughs> to it. Well, thanks to all three of you. Um, that was great. I encourage everyone to, um, you know, one easy way of support is to go out and 
by the book uh, because of the messages that Ale has in them, his ideas. Um, this is one way, as Sanat said, of breaking him out of prison uh, is to spread his ideas. And uh, they really are, he has a versatility of mind and um, uh, as Naomi said, a tenderness and a vulnerability that is rare. Uh, so I encourage everyone to get it. And uh, thank you very much to Verso and Haymarket and Seven Stories for this. And Naomi, Ruthie, Sanet, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.